I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. All fall down. It's high noon for Friday, December 3rd, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcotour.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 317th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. Somewhere within that tiny child brain that successfully operates all your bodily functions but doesn't really form coherent thoughts... You discovered that without really knowing anything, you must be smart and you must be right because you asked everyone else around you if they agreed and they said yes. But you kind of ignored the part where you know that those people don't know anything. But y'all watch the same news and the news can't all be lying. Surely if something very important was happening, the news would tell you the news are your friends. Basically... You just came to the conclusion that all your conclusions are correct in essentially the same way the legendary comedian Mitch Hedberg takes an AIDS test. Here that is. I've had four AIDS tests in my day. The AIDS test is very scary to get. It doesn't matter what you've been doing. Waiting for the results is frightening. So I don't get the regular AIDS test anymore. I get the roundabout AIDS test. I call my friend Brian. I say, Brian, do you know anybody who has AIDS? No? Cool. Because you know me. So Mitch Hedberg might be my favorite comedian of all time, and he died far too young. But I think about his jokes in almost every context because he always had this amazing way of pulling the truth and the reality out of otherwise innocuous situations. He had a way of pulling out the small morsel that you know to be true that's just underneath what we all kind of pretend is true. And he wasn't political, I don't think at all. I'm not sure I've ever heard a political Mitch Hedberg joke, and I think I've heard them all. But it's sad that a voice like that is no longer with us. That joke always kills me because obviously that test doesn't work, although it might be more reliable than the PCR test for COVID. But I've thought for many years about how we kind of try to convince ourselves of things simply by other people believing them. Ignoring the underlying truth, in this case, whether or not he actually had AIDS, 
You would just ask somebody else. No, that's not possible. It's not possible. So don't worry about that. Forget about it. No big deal. That's what we have going on with the party of false decorum. They will admit that they're not that into politics and they don't really know that much about politics, but they are absolutely certain that they are right. And they will argue that they're right, first by repeating the slogans, second by attacking your character, and third by expecting that you will understand how right they are when they walk away angrily, claiming that it's not worth their time to actually argue an issue like that. The good news is that the vast majority of us are leaving the party of false decorum completely. And we are preferring to just simply tell the truth. And if we're wrong here and there, that's fine. If we make predictions that don't turn out correct, that's fine. But we are actively trying to discern the truth and communicate it to other people. And we are right a hell of a lot. On the other hand, People in the party of false decorum, people addicted to the central narrative and committed to repeating the slogans are never right. They are always exactly wrong because the central narrative, as told to us by the propagandistic state media, is intended to lead us away from the truth. We believe that they are somehow objective because we have been taught that we must honor the practice of journalism, that they are just giving us the straight story. They're always objective. It turns out that's not true. They exist to make sure we never know the true story. And they will pile convoluted and complicated explanations on top of one another. And we imagine that intelligence in the world as it exists today is being able to memorize all those convoluted and complicated explanations and then repeat them in the face of much more simple truths. That somehow the amount of convolution and complication speaks to how right they must be, how deeply they've looked into a particular issue. And the smartest of these people, the most clever, maybe I should say, are equipped to give you back the entire convoluted and complicated explanation and respond to all the problems with that convoluted and complicated explanation. And eventually, at the end of that, they'll say things like, well, you know, neither of us are scientists. So eventually, they are arguing that we simply have to trust authority. Kind of makes you wonder why they bother with the whole complicated and convoluted explanation in the first place when they could have just simply admitted that they will always defer to higher authority no matter how important the issue is and no matter how little the convoluted and complicated explanation actually maps onto reality. The truth is it never maps onto reality at all. It kind of touches on the borderline of reality occasionally, but that is only so that you can Convince yourself that something about the convoluted and complicated explanation just must be true. If you are beginning to realize that it is never true and that you are never getting objective journalism and that all of it is just a trick, well, then I suggest it's time for you to migrate back to America. And all you have to do is leave all of those convoluted and complicated explanations behind all of those stupid and evil communist ideas that they fill your heads with 
to detach you from reality and more importantly, detach you from morality. And once you do that, once you realize how wrong it all has been and how much you have defended it, despite not knowing, then the next important step is to go out and make amends with all of the people you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. And you will find when you do that, people will actually accept your apology because we all understand that society has been pushing down on the people to make them believe and think in a certain way. And we have sympathy for that because many of us or even most of us were there before. I know I was. And ultimately, we actually want you back on this side of reality because the project of America works better with more Americans in it. We actually do have something to fight for. Okay, human liberty is our birthright. It is every human's birthright. And you need to reclaim that because it is being taken away from you. And you have to come to terms with that. Just stop being cowed and intimidated by these people. They cannot hurt you, which is not to say they won't try. They will. But you have to trust in your inner strength to just see your way forward. And you have to have faith that we are going to come out of this stronger. If you don't have that faith, what is the purpose of living? Honestly. So what you need to do is migrate back to America. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Friday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, redeemable communists. Welcome to the show. And I really am glad you're here because the mocking and the ridicule that you might have to endure as we go on this journey together is not about you personally, really. I mean, it is fun for me regardless. Don't worry. And you do very much deserve it. But what I really am focused on is getting you to understand how thoroughly ridiculous all of these positions you have held really are. Like, for instance, imagining that you could solve racism by voting for a fake president who was mentored by a grand Klegel and exalted Cyclops of the Klan. That is a ridiculous notion. But nonetheless, you did it. Now, will that be an enduring moral stain on your infinite soul? Maybe that really depends on you, doesn't it? But let's talk about masks for a few minutes, because as you all know, I have been making fun of maskies for well over a year now, partly because there's no proof anywhere in the world that masks actually help slow the spread of a virus. That is just obviously true. But beyond that, the masks are serving a truly dark purpose and they are destroying humanity. All right. You might think that that's overboard. That's fine. You can think that you have been wrong about everything for 20 months, but criticize me. It's all good. We are raising a generation of children who do not know how to socialize with people with faces. We are teaching them to be permanently scared of everyone else, especially the people who aren't like them, because they're being taught to imagine these people as carriers of a disease, even though they may be totally healthy in every possible way. If you think that stops when the COVID pandemic stops, 
you're out of your mind. We are creating a generation of absolute weaklings. And that is not an accident. Okay. And the truth is the parents who are masking their children were already raising weaklings. Now they are doing it, thinking it is a high honor to do so. And eventually the world will have to be shaped in a way that caters to them and they will expect to permanently be catered to. Now in Oregon, they are actually talking about keeping their indoor mask policies forever. This is a Twitter thread from a woman named Genevieve Rome or Rome. And she, of course, is a journalist. And by that, I mean a propagandist on the television news. Indoor masking in Oregon. It's likely here to stay. Today, OHA Oregon worked with stakeholders like those in the restaurant industry, business association, etc., to discuss making the current indoor mask mandate permanent. Why aren't the stakeholders the people? They are trying to make sure that the businesses are prepared to go along with their communist policies. Yes, that may sound alarming. Here's what you need to know about it. The current rule is temporary. It can't be in place more than 180 days. And obviously they can't keep re-upping it. It has only been 180 days for masks in Oregon. Oops. Making the rule permanent allows the state to keep the rule. That's very important to know about a rule that is permanent. But the other thing is the rule can be repealed. So what does the RAC do? This is from OHA. The purpose of the RAC meeting is to seek input from committee members on the rules, including the projected burden and fiscal impact of the rules and suggestions for alternative language. They give feedback on what should or shouldn't be in the ruling. And again, for those who missed it, yes, if this becomes a formal rule, it's technically a permanent rule, but it can be repealed. And stakeholders did bring up today how having an end date may be good. There is so much discussion to be had before any rule is adopted. So don't worry at all. That was me saying that, not her. She wants people to worry an appropriate amount, but not too much. Not too much that they're going to actually rise up and say, hey, this is bullshit. But, you know, just be prepared. And even more on the repealing thing. Another part of RAC meeting today was discussion about making parts or all of the rules easily repealable as COVID situation improves. Again, for the sake of my mention notifications, let's not all freak out now. It isn't a rule yet. And just like that, she has wittingly or unwittingly supported the permanent masking of Oregon citizens if they are indoors in a public place. For no reason. All right. For no reason. There is no proof anywhere in the world that enforced masking helps anything. There is also no proof anywhere in the world that one mask helps one individual ever prevent the spread of COVID, whether being infected or transmitting their infection to someone else. That just isn't something that has been proven anywhere. There are countries around the world who have locked down far harder than the United States ever did, and the masks did nothing. The enforced lockdowns did nothing. And of course, on the other hand, we have therapeutics like ivermectin that have been used around the world, and as soon as they are, COVID is gone. Isn't that incredible? Now, Just the News released a piece on December 1st, about masking. 
This is the headline. This is Greg Piper writing for Just the News. Researchers shoot holes in study touted for confirming masks work in curbing COVID. An acclaimed study on the effectiveness of masks in reducing symptomatic COVID-19 is facing new scrutiny after a researcher highlighted the minuscule infection differences between treatment and control groups randomized across 600 Bangladeshi villages. Accused of design flaws and overstating its findings when it was released in late August, the study's newly released data show only 20 more symptomatic COVID cases in the villages that didn't receive masks and related education, reminders, and role modeling by community leaders. In a total study population of 342,126 adults, 1,106 people in the control group tested positive compared to 1,086 in the treatment group. The latter group represented 52% of the study population. I have a hard time going from these numbers to the assured conclusions that masks work that was promulgated by the media or the authors after this preprint appeared. And a preprint is something that a study that comes out, but hasn't yet gone through the peer review process. This is University of California, Berkeley professor Ben Recht, who studies machine learning. And he wrote this in an essay last week. He said that he was frustrated that the raw number of seropositive cases was left out of the preprint by researchers led by Yale University economists Jason Abeluk and Ahmed Mubarak, preventing him from, quote, computing standard statistical analysis of their results. The researchers posted the replication code and data in early November, long after media coverage touting, quote, the largest randomized trial to demonstrate the effectiveness of surgical masks in particular to curb transmission of the coronavirus, end quote. In light of the full release, quote, a complex intervention, including an educational program, free masks, encouraged mask wearing and surveillance in a poor community with low population immunity and no vaccination showed at best modest reduction in infection, Rex said. The newly provided raw numbers exacerbate other weaknesses of the study, according to Recht, who was also initially skeptical of the research because of its statistical ambiguity. The study was not blinded, did not exclude pre-intervention infections, and was highly complex because of mixed interventions, he said. The three percentage point differential between household visit consent rates for the treatment and control groups by itself could wash away the difference in observed cases, he explained, adding that relative measures of risk are, quote, one of the dark tricks of biostatistics, end quote, which, unlike hard case counts, have a tendency to exaggerate effects. The UC Berkeley professor's analysis drew attention on Twitter, including from Harvard Medical School epidemiologist Martin Kulldorff, whose own skepticism of the protective power of masks for unvaccinated elderly people got him suspended by Twitter for a month. Isn't that amazing? A Harvard epidemiologist gets suspended by Twitter for stating the simple and obvious truth that masks don't work and these studies that pretend they do are all nonsense. One of the problems of the study is that despite the vast size of the study, the primary endpoint depends on around 5,000 blood samples collected, each from the treatment and control groups. Philadelphia cardiologist Anish Koka wrote in a related thread. So we are left to extrapolate from a 20 case difference tested in around 10,000 patients to a 300,000 patient study, he continued. But how robust can this possibly be? Kogan noted that Yale's Abeluk, a lead author, floated the idea of fining people for not wearing government supplied cloth masks, the least effective kind, early in the pandemic. 
It seems a bit much to go from these small differences to the police tracking down and finding people who don't mask in public, the cardiologist wrote. Abeluk also argued that if cloth masks reduced spread by 10%, that would more than justify an estimated cost per unit of $1. But of course, since they don't reduce anything by 10%, none of it can be justified no matter how you try to do it. And how much have those mask mandates actually cost people and businesses and economies? It's not nothing. I know that for myself, I'm not going to go places that I would ever have to wear a mask. And that includes, for the most part, traveling anywhere. I haven't gone on a plane since last Christmas. And the masking and the COVID nonsense is one of the major reasons why. I won't go to businesses that try to enforce masking. The lockdown and masking policies have destroyed businesses, destroyed people's jobs and harmed the entire economy. And more than that, they've harmed the world economy. The Bangladeshi research performed a year later found the interventions reduced symptomatic seroprevalence by 9.3% in the treatment group, but also that cloth masks specifically had an imprecise zero effect and surgical masks were statistically insignificant for age groups under 50. Oh, well, that kind of matters, doesn't it? George Mason University economist Tyler Cowen, founder of the economics blog Marginal Revolution and dubbed, quote, one of the most influential economists, end quote, of the 2000s by The Economist, pointed his readers to Rex analysis. With more data transparency, the Bangladeshi study does not seem to be holding up very well, he wrote Sunday, cautioning that at aggregate social level, we are quite far from knowing how well masks work. And hold on a second, because at the aggregate social level, we actually do know how well masks work. They don't work at all. If masks worked at all, they already would have worked. We don't need studies. I mean, yes, if you're going to try to prove that masks somehow do work, even though there is no discernible real world effect anywhere, I guess what you would do would be to start trying to design studies to test that. But it turns out there aren't any studies that show they work either. But even if somehow there was, and these studies that pretend to show some small effect from masking, even if somehow there was one of those that held up to criticism and analysis, it still wouldn't mean that they actually work. All it would mean is that there was some effect in those cases. We already have the real world to look at. And in the real world, masks have made zero difference. They've only served to annoy and sicken people and tear down human relations. And in light of this Omicron variant stuff, they came out and finally said that they had had this case in California, but that the case was actually from November 22nd. So there were 10 days in there where no one was talking about the Omicron thing. Let's remember that we know for a fact COVID was already in the United States, at least in early December 2019 or even November 2019. And that means that we lived in America for three and a half to four and a half months without masking, without lockdowns, without any restrictions whatsoever. And no one knew the difference. There was no difference in our society until they started canceling shit 
for COVID. And the media jumped on and put their little counters on the bottom of the screen and told us how very deadly the very deadly pandemic was. Three and a half to four and a half months. No mitigation, no nothing. People going to sporting events and concerts and bars and restaurants and schools. No mitigation, no lockdown, no masking, no experimental gene therapies, nothing. We just dealt with it and it made no difference. No difference. Abeluk called Rett's analysis deeply flawed in a lengthy email to Just the News Monday. He apparently gave the same response to Cowan's post Tuesday, emphasizing the study was now undergoing review at Science, the journal. Recht agrees that, quote, our intervention led to a roughly 10% reduction in symptomatic seropositivity, going from 12% to 41% of the population masked, Abeluk wrote. Taking this estimate at face value, going from no one masked to everyone masked would imply a considerably larger effect, a 33% reduction in COVID. People underwhelmed by the absolute number of cases prevented need to ask, what did you expect if masks are as effective as the observational literature suggests, he wrote. Abeluk agreed that, quote, survey response bias is a potential concern, end quote, but emphasized that the, the direction of the bias is unclear. Individuals might be more attuned to symptoms in the treatment group. Yeah, and they also might be less that, too. His research group has obtained funding to, quote, replicate the entire study and collect blood spots from symptomatic and non-symptomatic individuals to partially mitigate this bias, end quote. Oh, so you're going to do more study to prove the study that you've already done because the study you've already done was obviously inadequate. Isn't that strange that if they actually did a good study, they wouldn't have to add on to it, except they didn't do a good study and the results are nonsense. Rec didn't respond to a query for his response to Abelux rebuttal. Okay, well, that sentence sucks, but gave a short response in a Twitter thread Tuesday saying it highlights how conventions in science can can vary widely from field to field. In this case, economics and medicine. These differences show why we should pay more attention to effect size, bias and confounding variables than any convoluted statistical argument. Ooh, I like that. Abluck responded in his own lengthy thread by claiming Recht misunderstood the research trial. The bottom line is that the most natural and powered way of interpreting the study results remains asking whether people were less likely to have COVID in the treatment group, which is exactly what we do, he wrote. While Abluck believes Recht is well-intentioned, the UC Berkeley professor should have sought answers directly from Abluck, so I could clarify that we had good reasons for many of the choices he criticizes. And I'm sure he's doing very, very good analysis. He's just doing the science. And, you know, maybe his funding depends on it. And maybe this is his career. And maybe he's just a global communist. But this is the science. And we know that this is the right outcome for the science. Because if it wasn't the right outcome for the science, Twitter would never be censoring Harvard epidemiologists who say that this science is wrong. That's just obvious. And if it turned out that masks didn't actually work, well, the news would tell us that. And surely the public health community would tell us that. I mean, they haven't showed us any way ever that masks actually do work, but Fauci said uh, it can, it could catch a stray droplet. And we assume 
by virtue of that image that he has planted within the child brains, that the potential of catching a stray droplet is enough to make it worth it. And even if it's not, I mean, who wants stray droplets running around? That's nasty. It's better to let them go into your mask and then continue breathing them in all day. And it is kind of the perfect metaphor or analogy, I can't decide which, that these people, these ignorant morons, are so afraid of other people's germs maybe somehow reaching them that they will guarantee that their own germs will cycle through their body over and over and over and over again. That's how much disdain they have for other humans. It's kind of like the germaphobe effect in public restrooms. Like, oh, there's a bunch of paper towels all over the place by the uh, door rather than in the trash can on the other side of the restroom. I wonder who could have done that. And of course, the propagation of germophobia over the last decade or two decades or whatever kind of makes sense in all of this. It is an elitist mindset that their germs are no problem to everyone else, but everyone else's germs are a problem to them. They imagine themselves as the clean and everyone else as the unclean. And of course, our public health officials have nothing to do with that because they are always very smart and very responsible and only really care about saving lives. Except that's not true at all. This is Breitbart today, Joel Pollack. Officials refuse to reveal where Omicron patient connected and route to U.S. State and federal officials are refusing to reveal where the first U.S. patient to have been identified with the Omicron variant of the coronavirus traveled en route to California from South Africa, where it is suggested that he or she contracted the virus. On Wednesday, the White House revealed that the first Omicron variant case had been detected in San Francisco in a traveler from South Africa, aged between 18 and 49 years old. The announcement seemed to vindicate President Joe Biden's decision several days before to announce a travel ban from South Africa and several other neighboring African countries. However, there are no direct flights to California from South Africa, suggesting that the individual had to connect through another airport where he or she may have exposed others to the virus or alternatively where he or she could have been exposed. The White House did not say, nor did reporters ask, where the traveler had connected through or how long they had stayed there. A comprehensive report in the Los Angeles Times included many new details, but also omitted the connection point. Breitbart News contacted the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the California Department of Public Health. The CDC referred inquiries to the California Department of Public Health. The California Department of Public Health responded that it cannot provide or confirm this information due to patient confidentiality. Does that make any sense? Of course not. Do we know the patient's name? No. Do we know the patient's age? No. It's somewhere between 18 and 49. That's already a big enough range, don't you think? And patient confidentiality, if they said that the person connected through Copenhagen or Amsterdam, would that really give us enough information to find out who exactly the individual is? And would anyone even care? Of course not. There is nothing about confidentiality that would justify not reporting that information, assuming it actually exists. 
And yes, I know, that's a conspiracy. Searches on travel websites indicate that any number of cities could have been the connecting point for the traveler in Europe, in the Middle East, or on the East Coast of the United States. Several other Omicron variant cases have since been identified in the U.S., several of which did not involve any travel. South Africa has protested the travel ban as overly harsh and nasty, calling it a health apartheid. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has made similar remarks, calling Biden's policy and similar policies elsewhere travel apartheid. But of course, all of that is a conspiracy, too. They are really just trying to responsibly look after the public health and save lives. Now, switching subjects without a segue. But also sort of a segue, because this article strikes to exactly what it is that these very smart people are all doing wrong by not recognizing. This is by Lee Smith in Tablet Magazine. This is from yesterday. Here comes the limited hangout. And this is a bit long, but it is important. So I'm going to go through it with you. Since Watergate, conventional Washington wisdom holds that the cover up is worse than the crime. Richard Nixon's committee to reelect the president tasked former intelligence operatives to break into Democrat National Committee headquarters to wiretap the opposition to cover up his involvement in the Watergate break in. Nixon lied about what he knew and when he knew it, resulting in his resignation from office. Whether Hillary Clinton was aware of the crimes committed between 2016 and 2020 to further her political ambitions is a question that may never be answered. What has been proved beyond any shadow of a doubt by the U.S. Justice Department over the past few months is that top operatives in her 2016 campaign used concocted falsehoods to leverage active law enforcement officials who in turn used U.S. government programs and resources to spy on the Trump campaign, a violation of American political norms whose only real parallel is Watergate. We also know that under the pretext of investigating collusion, at least 40 Obama officials, including then Vice President Joe Biden, spied on the Trump team. There is circumstantial evidence that Barack Obama knew what was going on. But since, miraculously, no one has ever publicly asked him about Russiagate, not even once, he hasn't had the opportunity to either lie or come clean. But with Trump now safely out of office, it appears that the cover up is now cracking wide open. In September, John Durham, the special counsel investigating the origins of the FBI's Russia probe, charged Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman with lying to the FBI. In September 2016, Sussman, a former Justice Department official, passed reports to the bureau that were meant to incriminate the Trump circle by claiming evidence of links between the Trump organization and a Russian bank. Sussman had told the FBI he was not acting on behalf of a client, but records Durham obtained from Sussman's law firm, Perkins Cooey, showed he was billing the Clinton campaign for drawing up the reports and for the meeting itself. Last month, charges were brought against Igor Danchenko, the former Brookings Institution analyst who was ostensibly the primary source for Christopher Steele's notorious dossier, which served as the legal foundation for the Russiagate conspiracy theory within the FBI. Danchenko was indicted for lying to the FBI on five counts with a maximum sentence of five years for each count. According to Durham's 39 page indictment, Danchenko lied to the bureau when he said that Washington, D.C. public relations executive Charles Dolan, identified in the indictment only as PR executive one, was not one of the sources for information that he passed on to Steele. In fact, Danchenko used several pieces of information provided to him upon request from Dolan, yet another figure in the Clinton orbit. 
The four other charges brought against Danchenko are for lying to the FBI about the role played by Sergei Milion, a real estate broker and former chairman of the Russian American Chamber of Commerce. In a January 2017 interview with the FBI, Danchenko said that Milion was the source for some of the dossier's central claims, like the story about the infamous P-tape and the allegation that there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. Danchenko told his FBI interviewers that he obtained that information during a 15 minute phone conversation with an anonymous caller that Danchenko said he assumed was Milian. During three follow up FBI interviews, Danchenko continued to insist Milian was one of his sources, even though there is no evidence that the two men ever spoke. But just because Durham indicted Clinton contractors for making false statements to federal law enforcement doesn't mean he sees the FBI team that ran the Trump investigation as impartial enforcers of the law. Durham now appears to be using well-documented and relatively easy cases to pressure Sussman and Danchenko to give up accomplices one rung up, likely under the threat of jail time. The fact that even after dossier source Danchenko effectively confessed he'd made it all up, the FBI still obtained two more warrants to spy on Trump after he'd become president suggests that the agents who had him under surveillance may now also be under Durham's scrutiny. Now the media is scrambling to distance itself from the dossier, with the New York Times explaining that just because the prestige press poisoned the public sphere with Clinton-funded smears doesn't mean that the larger Russiagate story they peddled is also fake. That is, the press has taken another page from the Watergate playbook. As that scandal started to unfold, Nixon's White House aides discussed strategies to deal with the looming disaster. They talked about a standard spy service ploy called a limited hangout. When it's no longer possible to sustain a phony cover story, dangle some partial truths in public and acknowledge some small, albeit honest, miscues in order to keep the most damning parts of the truth under wraps. Just as this strategy failed to protect Richard Nixon and his men, chances are it won't help culpable reporters and news organizations avoid responsibility for their active role in the country's biggest political crime of the past half century. But it does show quite plainly what the American press has become. Now, I love Lee Smith, but I've got to say the Russiagate hoax is now no longer anywhere near the biggest political crime of the half century. Stealing an election kind of goes well above and beyond that. And I just want to hang for a second on the limited hangout concept. This is how Rational Wiki explains it. Limited hangout is intelligence jargon for a form of propaganda in which a selected portion of a scandal, criminal act, sensitive or classified information, etc., is revealed or leaked without telling the whole story. The intention may be to establish credibility as a critic of something or somebody by engaging in criticism of them while in fact covering up for them by omitting many details to distance oneself publicly from something using innocuous or vague criticism, even when one's own sympathies are privately with them or to divert public attention away from a more heinous act by leaking information about something less heinous. And we talked about this yesterday. This is a common tactic used by political extremist groups on both ends of the political spectrum, as well as by government intelligence agencies caught in scandals. And this happens all the time. This is basically the function of mainstream media. A comparison of the media's role in the two biggest political scandals of the past half century is worth the time of anyone who cares about what the next decade or so of American public life is going to look and sound like. 
The Watergate story was broken by the Washington Post, which rightfully reaped bushels of glory for uncovering the criminal wrongdoing and malfeasance of President Nixon and his top aides. The Post's top Watergate reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, became famous and rich and were lionized in an Academy Award winning film, All the President's Men. In Russiagate, the Washington Post played the starring role in the cover up. Congress's hometown paper was the main venue through which U.S. officials illegally passed classified information to prosecute a campaign against a sitting president, validating a conspiracy theory that they helped to invert in part to cover their own flanks. Indeed, U.S. intelligence services used the post to roll out the cover up of their own illegal actions and malfeasance in a December 9th, 2016 story itself sourced to illegal leaks of classified information titled Secret CIA Assessment Says Russia Was Trying to Help Trump Win the White House. And of course, as we learned from the CIA document yesterday, no matter what happened during this time, it wasn't James Clapper or John Brennan. Doesn't matter what else you say, you just have to be sure that the CIA knows for a fact it wasn't James Clapper or John Brennan. When the Pulitzer Prize Committee awarded the Post, along with its chief rival, the New York Times, the prize for its Trump-Russia work, it was an announcement that the kind of fearless investigative journalism that won the press the public's admiration for three generations was finished. The profession was moving on. It had to. The rise of the Internet had destroyed the financial model on which the great 20th century newspapers and magazines were built, forcing them to spend down the cultural capital embodied in their own memorable typefaces. The business of independent journalism governed by professional editors who imagined themselves to be answerable to their peers was replaced by monopoly speech platforms that were wholly owned by oligarchs who called for their hired guns to run social media driven Internet campaigns against their enemies. The job of these new media outlets was not to speak truth to the powerful men and women who owned their platforms and paid their bills. Rather, it was to serve as a megaphone for their power, to use the forms of journalism like investigations and whistleblowers and inside sources to protect and advance the interests of an increasingly ambitious oligarchy that employed the country's corporate, political, academic and cultural elites as their retainers and servants. In rewarding the country's two most prestigious papers for partnering with intelligence services to shield criminals and attempting to undo the results of a presidential election, the Pulitzer Committee announced that the American media had entered the post-dossier era. The dossier was the centerpiece of Russiagate, marketed by the press as a collection of highly confidential top secret intelligence reports. It was, in fact, a slipshod anthology of fabrications, press articles and Google search results prepared under the byline of British ex-spy Christopher Steele for Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign in order to smear her Republican opponent as a Russian agent. The Clinton campaign's lawyers hired Glenn Simpson and Peter Fritch co-founders of the D.C. political communications firm Fusion GPS to distribute the dossier to the media. After Steele's ostensible primary source for the dossier was indicted for lying to the FBI last month, Fusion GPS's media clients have been trying to put room between themselves and Steele's counterfeit memos by arguing that the dossier never actually mattered. Nonetheless, the Russiagate faithful still maintain that the dossier's wholesale untruthfulness doesn't affect its essential underlying truth, which is ostensibly corroborated in endless numbers of other places. This type of logic is generally known as cargo culting. 
Cordoning off the dossier to preserve the collusion story is a standard part of the Russiagate playbook. Four years ago, when the narrative started to unravel, once congressional investigators discovered the dossier had been funded by the Clinton campaign, the New York Times published a story by Sharon Lafreniere, Mark Mazzetti, and Matt Apuzo on December 30th, 2017, cited by the Pulitzer Committee, showing that the Trump-Russia investigation wasn't based on the dossier after all. Rather, the story claimed, the investigation had been opened in July 2016 because a foreign official told American law enforcement officials that a Trump aide had been told by another foreign national that the Russians had Clinton's emails. The press made the same move away from the dossier after the Justice Department's inspector general released a report in December 2019 showing how Steele's reporting had been improperly used by the FBI to put the Trump campaign under surveillance. The media's argument then, as now, is that the dossier and Russiagate are separate issues and that even though the story outlined in the dossier is false, it is also true. In reality, there is no Russiagate without the dossier. It was the main piece of evidence used by the FBI to obtain a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant to collect the electronic communications of Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. Through Page's communications, the FBI would have been able to sweep up the communications of virtually every Trump associate. Just like the Nixon campaign's operatives jimmied their way into the DNC offices, the Clinton campaign passed the dossier onto the FBI so it could spy on the Trump campaign digitally. Why did the Clinton campaign get involved in such skullduggery when it seemed the candidate's victory was virtually a lock? The motivation seems pretty straightforward. Her team was worried that emails from her notably unsecured private server would go public. If the emails went live and contained problematic content, there would be no way to whitewash whatever is in them. So, like the lawyers they are, they decided to preemptively attack the delivery mechanism. Don't look at the emails. Look over here. The real crime is who stole Hillary's emails and who benefited from the theft. So among the scores of other competent intelligence services that likely have her emails, they hung it on Russia and Trump. But don't take my word for it. CIA Director John Brennan explained in a late July 2016 meeting with Obama that Clinton had approved a plan concerning, quote, Trump and Russian hackers hampering U.S. elections as a means of distracting the public from her use of a private email server, end quote. That's pretty straightforward. And of course, it's great to know that Obama knew all of it. FBI documents show that the Bureau sent an informant against a Trump advisor to get him to talk about Russia, Clinton emails, and an October surprise. According to the 2019 Inspector General's report, the FBI edited the recording to implicate the advisor. It then used the doctored version as further evidence alongside the dossier to obtain the spy warrant. And this can't be, right? This is all a conspiracy theory because we know that the FBI does very good work. The New York Times' Brett Stevens came down hard on the FBI in a recent column, cataloging what the Clinton-funded smear campaign cost the country. Quote, years of high-level federal investigations, ponderous congressional hearings, pompous Adam Schiff soliloquies, and nonstop public fur, writes Stevens. But none of that would likely have happened if the FBI had treated the dossier as the garbage that it was, end quote. That's a 180 degree turnaround from where Stevens was three years ago when he wrote in praise of the FBI's Russia investigation and castigated the congressional investigators who first unearthed the evidence now corroborated by germs investigation. When Tablet emailed Stevens for a comment on his change of heart, he replied, when I get things wrong, as I sometimes do, I own and own up to it. And I'm sure that Brett Stevens actually believes he's being honest and responsible in that response. But of course, 
if that's the case, why did it take him this long? Did he just figure out that that's wrong? Of course not. Brett Stevens is smarter and more well-connected and more well-read than that. He basically only owned up to it once he and all the rest of them were fully exposed. In doing so, Stevens is a rare exception among his colleagues in blue chip media. Collusion dead enders and stone cold cultists like former George W. Bush speechwriter David Frum, New York Magazine's Jonathan Chait, and Mother Jones's David Korn argue that just because the dossier was found to be a total fake doesn't mean the rest of the Russiagate narrative is a hoax. On the contrary, after Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple acknowledged in a recent column that press organizations, including some of his colleagues, got fooled by Steele and Danchenko. He contended without evidence that, quote, there is far more to Russia, Trump, than the dossier. His Washington Post colleague, foreign affairs columnist Anne Applebaum, concurs. A passionate Russiagator who embarrassingly devoted dozens of columns to hawking the fusion GPS driven fraud, Applebaum tweeted after the Danchenko indictments that, quote, even if every single word in the Steele dossier was wrong, that would not change the fact that the Russians sought to manipulate the U.S. election using hacked material and a disinformation campaign. Nor would it change the fact that the Trump family welcomed this intervention. Hear, hear. But who are these people? Of the journalists who spent several years of their lives shilling for a conspiracy theory that starts with a crudely pornographic account of prostitutes urinating on a Moscow hotel bed, some were part of the Clinton court. Others saw the story as a career move and rode the collusion bandwagon to book deals, TV contracts, and lucrative public speaking gigs. But the real story of the dossier is not a tale of dim-witted writers who were duped by their sources or played along to advance their professional standing. It is about the role that elite media played in an intelligence operation to first spy on a presidential campaign and then discredit the results of a democratic election and undermine the legitimacy of a presidential administration. Therefore, the story of Sergey Milian and how he was framed by the press, the Clinton campaign and the FBI is worth telling here in some detail. And I know I mention this often, but really... Who are the conspiracy theorists here? Just because these people have doctorate degrees from prestigious universities does not mean that they are somehow honest or knowledgeable. These people are conspiracy theorists who are just ultra committed to their conspiracy theories. And what they are doing is concocting these convoluted and complicated explanations to try to convince people that what is not true, what is provably not true, is in fact true or important enough that the truth doesn't matter anyway. And this article is actually very long, so I'm going to skip down. Fusion GPS, according to bank records, paid journalists. But the more significant revelation from those records is that Fusion GPS was paid by at least one media organization and at least eight law firms in addition to Perkins Coie. The money trail would seem to lead not just to individual reporters, but also to those at the very top of the elite ecosystem, editors in chief, publishers, media magnates, Washington, D.C. lawyers with ties to both parties and major donors. This is the fuller context in which to understand the media's response to the Danchenko indictment and Durham's possible next moves. They're bracketing the dossier to save not just the Russiagate narrative, but their own skins. Accordingly, the Washington Post is furnishing a limited hangout. Rather than retract the two fraudulent stories about Millian's role in assembling the dossier, the Post has taken the novel step of correcting the stories by removing the allegations and appending an editorial note. 
That is, the Post has falsified the record of its own reporting by removing from the public view the evidence of how it helped frame an innocent man. And he's talking about Million, but you could imagine that last sentence being about Donald Trump as well. They framed an innocent Donald Trump. They framed an innocent presidential candidate in an attempt to make sure that he did not become president. In a recent column chastising the media for getting the dossier wrong, Wemple withheld the identities of the two Post reporters, Hamburger and Helderman, who published the false stories about Million. Meanwhile, another recent Wemple column takes aim at CNN for its fake reckoning over the dossier and criticizing Brian Stelter for not renouncing the dossier on his media show. In other words, the Post's media man is focusing on other outlets to distract attention from the fact his Post colleagues were the main media force behind Russiagate. Wemple, who did not respond to Tablet's email requesting comment, has been running interference for the paper's Russiagate coverage since the publication of the 2019 Inspector General report. At the time, he embarked on a multi-column series calling out the various media organizations that needed to be forthright about their dossier reporting, like CNN, MSNBC, Politico, Mother Jones, and even the New York Times, all of which, according to Wemple, got played. As for his own paper, he made a fleeting reference to a 2018 David Ignatius article in which the columnist vouched for the dossier. But that hardly tells the whole story of Ignatius's role in the Russiagate operation. Shortly before Trump's January 2017 inauguration, Ignatius wrote an article that cast suspicion on incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn for a conversation he had with the Russian ambassador to Washington. Obviously, communicating with foreign officials is what the job of National Security Advisor entails. But Ignatius reported details of their conversation that were meant to implicate the retired general as a Russian agent. The details were believed to be sourced to an illegal leak of foreign intelligence intercept, which congressional investigators and intelligence officials say was one of the biggest such leaks in U.S. history. The leak was used to target Flynn, who as a career military intelligence officer was the one Trump aide in administration full of novices who would have known how to find evidence of the FBI's pre-election crimes. This was the first step in an FBI operation that eventually flushed Flynn from the White House and would lead to a long legal fight that cost him millions of dollars. And thus, Ignatius's January 12th, 2017 column was one of the main instruments in the FBI's cover-up. Ignatius did not respond to Tablet's email requesting comment. And of course, this goes on and on. So imagine... The sort of elites that would be able to explain why, for instance, voting for a man who was mentored by a Klansman was actually done in the service of solving racism. Anyone who could wind their way through that conversation and by the end still feel like they are the very smart and very moral one is basically prepared to believe anything so long as they are told those things by the right people. The sort of people with high-level degrees from very prestigious universities. The sort of people who can concoct convoluted and complicated explanations for pretty much anything. Now, if you take that out of politics and out of media, and you bring that back into your personal life, say it's someone you're in a relationship with, or a friend, or your boss, or your employee. If what you often got from that person was a convoluted and complicated explanation about something you already knew to be untrue, what would you think of that person? You wouldn't think, my, 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 this person is brilliant. I guess they have an explanation for everything. It is incredible. You wouldn't think that. 
you'd be like, wow, this person is a pathological liar. But somehow the prestigious degrees and the tribal political affiliation means that these people are not pathological liars. They are not covering up for their own obvious inadequacies and falsehoods. They are instead telling very smart people, yes, this situation really is this complicated. And it's so complicated, in fact, that you just need to take our word for it. You don't even need to really read what we're saying. Just understand that there are people out there who are smarter than you and know way more than you who believe that all this stuff is right. And therefore, if you want to be considered a smart and serious person, you better believe that we are still telling the truth. Because honestly, look what we do to people who argue with us. It turns out it actually is pretty easy to convince people that obvious lies are in fact true as long as you have given them proper incentive to agree. And serious enough disincentives for going against what the mainstream says. And of course, we have that right now in spades. That's why the propaganda state media has been effective for so long, though that effectiveness is gone. Now, what else are our betters also completely ignorant and wrong about? Here is another example. This is from American Greatness yesterday by the great Julie Kelly. Will the public finally see what happened in the Capitol tunnel? For months, Merrick Garland's Department of Justice has tried every trick in the law books to conceal from Americans a massive trove of video evidence that captured all the activity at the Capitol complex on January 6th. Federal judges have played along, approving hundreds of protective orders to keep video clips, particularly footage recorded by the Capitol Police's extensive closed-circuit television system, out of the public eye. Time, however, is running out for the government. Despite numerous discovery delays, Garland's prosecutors are gradually turning over video evidence to defense attorneys as they prepare for trial. All surveillance video from the Capitol security system is designated, quote, highly sensitive and, quote, government material. Strict rules apply to the handling of every slice of footage. And again, what did we say yesterday about the CIA covering up the sex crimes against children by its own personnel? They claimed that they needed to keep these stories from the public to protect state secrets and national security. They just drop that one explanation and we can't know if it's true or not. So we have to assume that they have integrity and they're looking out for our best interests. And the world is a very complicated place that we're just not prepared to face on our own. And so we throw our hands up and go back to watching reality television. There's a reason why. As we have reported at American Greatness for months, one of the most scandalous untold stories about January 6th is egregious police misconduct that, in some instances, amounted to brutality by D.C. Metro and U.S. Capitol Police. Had these attacks by law enforcement occurred in any other public or private setting against leftist protesters, the national outrage would have resulted in mass firings and immediate calls for criminal investigations. For example... The House of Representatives held two hearings last year related to its investigation into allegations of excessive force by members of the U.S. Park Police in Lafayette Square, located across the street from the White House on June 1st, 2020. 
Rioters protesting the death of George Floyd occupied the federal park for days, attacked law enforcement, set fires and looted nearby property, which prompted the Secret Service to move President Trump to a safe location. An inspector general report later confirmed rioters assaulted federal officers with bricks, rocks, caustic liquids, frozen water bottles, glass bottles, lit flares, rental scooters and fireworks. And just as an aside, don't worry, there were no Chinese nationals involved in any of this at all. And we are never going to find out there were. But Lafayette Square rioters were portrayed as victims rather than perpetrators of the violence. One activist, Keyshawn McDonald, a 39-year-old Navy veteran, testified to the House Natural Resources Committee in June 2020 that, quote, police started throwing tear gas and flashbang grenades at us for no reason. We were retreating. Using weapons on us was ridiculous. It just made the situation dangerous, end quote. Officers also were accused of hitting protesters with riot shields and batons. A similar yet more violent situation played out on Capitol Hill on January 6th. Open source video and testimonial evidence show Capitol and D.C. Metro Police officers using flashbangs, sting balls filled with rubber projectiles and excessive amounts of tear gas against peaceful protesters assembled outside the building an hour before the building even was breached. Other firsthand accounts describe physical assaults by police. One clip circulated on Twitter in late November shows several D.C. Metro police officers taking down and beating a protester who apparently breached a security line. At least one protester, Ashley Babbitt, was shot and killed by Capitol Police Officer Michael Byrd, although she was unarmed and posed no lethal threat. Democrats, most Republicans and the entire corporate news media not only have ignored provable instances of police brutality on January 6th, but suggest insurrectionists, including Babbitt, deserve their fate. The same news organizations that for years have covered every angle of alleged police misconduct are selectively quiet when it comes to the egregious behavior by law enforcement during the Capitol protest. But defense attorneys are now prepared to present their evidence about what the police did on January 6th in the court of public opinion, which matters as much as the legal proceedings underway in the D.C. court system. Joseph McBride, a New York based attorney representing some January 6th defendants, prepared a motion last month that detailed an horrific account of what happened in the Lower West Terrace Tunnel, the site of the most vicious brawls between police and protesters. Isn't that amazing that the most vicious brawls happened in a tunnel? And not out in the open. I wonder who selected that location. Was it the protesters or was it the Capitol Police? In his filing on behalf of Ryan Nichols, a decorated Marine charged with several offenses, including assaulting law enforcement that day, McBride, based on his viewing a three-hour segment of surveillance footage, described police officers punching, kicking, macing, and beating with sticks and their fists, several protesters trapped inside the tunnel. One D.C. Metro Police supervisor was especially abusive, repeatedly beating an unidentified woman. The weapon this officer appears to be using is a collapsible stick designed to break windows in emergency situations, McBride wrote of the supervisor. This stick is neither designed nor to be used against another human being. The woman was punched numerous times in the face. Blood was pouring out of her face, according to McBride's motion. When Nichols, who wanted to keep an eye on the targeted woman, sees her attempting to leave the tunnel, she gets kicked and stomped in the head by an officer. She is screaming, and so are others. This still unidentified woman is not Roseanne Boyland, the 34-year-old Trump supporter from Georgia who also died on January 6th. The D.C. coroner attributed her death to overdosing on her daily medication of Adderall. 
but new revelations about the circumstances prior to her death cited in court documents and witness statements raised disturbing questions. Boyland apparently died outside the tunnel around 4.30 p.m. on January 6th amid a fierce battle between police and protesters. Her body was then dragged through the tunnel by Sergeant Acalino Gonnell, one of the January 6th Select Committee star witnesses, according to his own testimony. Gannell met up with Officer Harry Dunn inside the building. They kept her body at the House Majority Leader's office until paramedics arrived. Boyland was transported to an area hospital and officially pronounced dead after 6 p.m. Oh, isn't that amazing? Isn't it incredible that the two people who found the body of this woman beaten to death dragged her through the tunnel and into Nancy Pelosi's office so they could wait for the paramedics there. They were probably just trying to save her life there rather than outside. That's probably what they were doing. And they probably weren't trying to cover up what actually happened to Roseanne Boyland. Releasing the footage that McBride cites in his motion is crucial to the public's full understanding of what happened on January 6th. In a separate motion this week, McBride urged the presiding judge to remove protective orders on eight separate video clips associated with his client's case. Arguing that the public only has seen cherry picked videos produced by the government, McBride wrote that, quote, the time has come for the complete tale of January 6th to be told. America will never know the truth about Mr. Nichols or any January 6er until the sensitivity designations are removed. Ironically, the same corporate media complex that has promoted any number of falsehoods about January 6th and defamed capital defendants agrees with McBride. An application filed this week by the Press Coalition, a group representing 16 major news companies, including CNN, The Washington Post and The Wall Street Journal, also asked the D.C. District Court to release the videos in the Nichols case. And just to pause on the article for a second, this sounds like the setup to another limited hangout operation. OK, these news organizations have pushed the very violent insurrection story the entire time. It's been 11 months and they have pushed this the entire time. During that time, there was a fake impeachment. There have been citizens rounded up around the country for being on the Capitol property, and they have been detained. They are political prisoners. Some of them are being held in solitary confinement. Almost all of them have been mistreated in one or many ways by the prison complexes they are in. And the entire narrative has been used to say this is what can happen if you keep telling the big lie that the election was stolen. Turns out none of that is true. The election was stolen. The protest was about a stolen election. The violence where it happened was often instigated by the D.C. Metro Police and the Capitol Police. The entire thing was staged for the political benefit of the global communists. All of that is true. The media is now trying to protect themselves from liability. And so, of course, they want more video now because their grip on the narrative is slipping. And once that slips away, all of a sudden, well, they're liable. So they might as well try to get out ahead of it by giving the public little tiny pieces of information so that they can get just enough out there to prepare the public for the whole thing being wrong. By that time, though, they're hoping the public will just accept their little morsels and forget about what the actual effect of all this was. Because they're not concerned about the minor details. They know their audience doesn't read and doesn't care about the minor details. What they want is for the narrative, the central narrative to stay in place. 
Because the video exhibits are judicial records subject to an unrebutted presumption of public access, the court should grant this application and direct the government to release the video exhibits to the press coalition, the group's lawyers wrote on November 30th. Judge Thomas Hogan ordered the Justice Department to respond to the coalition's request by December 10th. And let's be honest, Merrick Garland is probably just not going to. It's nearly impossible to underscore how devastating the release of surveillance video from the gates of hell, as McBride described the scene inside the West Terrace Tunnel, will be to the accepted narrative about January 6th. Coupled with other instances of police misconduct that day, including the random and unnecessary use of explosive crowd control devices before any violence took place, January 6th will make Lafayette Square look like a day in the federal park. And yes, communists and people attached to the central narrative, the whole Lafayette Square thing was also proven false. And finally, because it's Friday and because we haven't done this in so very long, I want to check in with Newsweek's own Yuanan Palmer for another fantastic expose on QAnon. This is uh, from today. Sylvester Stallone excites QAnon by wearing Q hat into the storm remark. Actor Sylvester Stallone has shared a picture of himself wearing a hat with the letter Q on it, captioning the selfie with a phrase closely linked to the QAnon conspiracy theory. The Rocky and Rambo star uploaded the photo to Instagram, where he has more than 14.3 million followers with the caption heading into the storm. The post is not a direct endorsement of the far right movement, which is listed as a terrorist threat by the very, very important FBI. But it has sparked speculation that Stallone is making coded references to QAnon. The conspiracy theory's central belief, originally spread via a message board user known as Q, is that the world is run by a cabal of satanic cannibal pedophiles. Now, is that the conspiracy's central belief? No. But QAnon says it in all his articles, and so does every other dumbass Q reporter. In QAnon lore, the storm is the moment when high-profile child abusers, including leading Democrats and members of the Hollywood elite, will be arrested and executed on the orders of Donald Trump, who is seen as a savior-like figure. Now, certainly, there are people who have read the Q posts who do believe that. Also, if you care about justice at all, Regardless of the Q thing, you would hope that high profile child abusers like those people in the CIA, for instance, or like everybody associated with Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein are actually punished. That is just a normal sense of human justice. It's not a conspiracy theory that Jeffrey Epstein is who Jeffrey Epstein is and that Ghislaine Maxwell is who Ghislaine Maxwell is. In fact, she's on trial right now. And in that trial, it has come out that Jeffrey Epstein visited Bill Clinton in the White House 17 times. Now, I think Bill Clinton qualifies as a leading Democrat. But of course, in Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book, there are also all sorts of Hollywood elites. Now, does that mean that Hollywood elites were engaged in crimes against children? Well, no, not necessarily. We have not seen that proof yet, although there is some reason to believe it might well be true. And one of the best reasons to believe it might well be true is how often these people were associated with Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. Believers have seen various prophesied dates for the storm come and go, 
most notably the inauguration of Joe Biden on January 20th. Although the combination of Stallone's cap and caption could be a simple coincidence, high-profile QAnon advocates have been sharing the expendable stars post. Pepe Lives Matter, who's awesome, by the way, a QAnon profile. No, he's not. He's just a guy who likes to share the truth about certain subjects and talks about Q posts. It really doesn't require an entire belief system. It is just information among other information. And Pepe Lives Matter actually seems like a really good person. But let's go back to the beginning of this. Pepe Lives Matter, a QAnon profile with more than 149,000 followers, wrote on encrypted messaging app Telegram, what kind of hat is that? Stallone with an interesting photo. And that's funny. Also, what is the point of calling Telegram an encrypted messaging app? It's like they're trying to imply that that's like the dark corners of the internet. iMessage and WhatsApp, as we discussed yesterday, are also classified as encrypted messaging apps. Similar comments were made by a number of other popular QAnon accounts on Telegram, including one with over 250,000 followers. Whoa! Truth Hammer, a QAnon Telegram account with more than 44,000 followers, wrote, check out that hat in that caption. Stallone knows. And it's actually funny because in the picture, there is a woman behind him. Stallone is on a private jet. And there's a woman behind him covering her face so that she will not be pictured. And the title of her book is Every Last Secret. This shit is hilarious. Other social media users replied to Stallone's Instagram post questioning why he had chosen that hat and caption. Seriously, is my childhood hero going QAnon? Say it ain't so, wrote Michael Howard, who I guess is somebody. Eye of the Tiger in the Eye of the Storm added Instagram user C-M-I-N-M-S. What? In reference to the Survivor song, that was the theme of Rocky Three. While there has been no previous suggestion that Stallone is linked to QAnon, he does appear to have a good relationship with Trump, despite not endorsing him for president in 2016 or 2020. In May 2018, the former president issued a uh, posthumous pardon to heavyweight boxer Jack Johnson after being urged to do so by Stallone. The actor was present in the Oval Office when Trump signed the pardon. In April this year, however, Stallone's representatives denied media reports that the actor had become a member of Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. A spokesperson for Stallone told people that he has never been and is not now a member of Mar-a-Lago, as has been falsely reported. He was an invited dinner guest at the club, but is not himself a member there. The statement added, he is, however, a member of the Breakers Club in Palm Beach. Stallone was a guest at Mar-a-Lago on New Year's Eve in 2016. Newsweek has attempted to reach Stallone for comment. And I'm sure that Sylvester Stallone's number one priority is responding to Ewanon Palmer about his hat. And it really is amazing that these millennial conspiracy bloggers like Newsweek's Ewanon Palmer actually think that there is a world that exists where they can somehow take down Sylvester Stallone's reputation by associating him with a conspiracy theory that they can't even describe or understand. They always talk about how it's this satanic cabal of child-eating pedophiles or whatever. They describe it as something so absurd so that no one actually looks at it. The Q posts are just information among other information. If you can read them and understand all the social and political issues they mention, you will actually be a much smarter person about how the world works. It does not require believing 
in a grand theory or explanation about what all the posts mean together or what they could mean or what some people think they might mean. But of course, they would never actually include the Q posts and they would never actually tell people to read the Q posts because if people did that, they might be like, oh, this is what everybody is so upset about. Like, really? And it doesn't actually matter where the Q posts come from or whether or not they're a psyop by one side or the other. They're just information among other information. If you don't understand them, there are actual issues in there that you can research and understand. And it turns out that's what the Anons did because QAnon is not a thing. There are Q posts, then there are Anons. And Anons are just researchers trying to figure out what the truth is about all of these very important issues. And the funny thing is that all of the truth being revealed all around the world touches on every one of these issues. And a lot of it relies on the research Anons did. Just because you're not getting that information directly from those sources does not mean that the information is not being pushed into the mainstream. And of course, it is being pushed into the mainstream. And that's why it's interesting. People like me and people like Patel Patriot were not Q people and still are not Q people, I guess, although I don't really know what that means. I've read a bunch of Q posts. A lot of them talk about issues that I was already talking about. Now, did I come to all those conclusions on my own or did I come to those conclusions because Anons pushed that information into the mainstream? The truth is, I don't know and never will know. But to think that all of this is some dangerous, violent, insane thing is brain dead, rock dumb, stupid. Okay, you cannot be a smart person and also be scared of Q posts. Every single word printed about the Russiagate conspiracy in our nation's most prestigious newspapers and magazines and on our cable news shows by all of the people with very high degrees from very prestigious universities. All of that, all of that is far more dangerous than the Q posts. And we don't even need to get to all of the race hoaxes out there. That also is far more dangerous than the Q posts. And of course, nothing could be more dangerous than actively misleading the public about a stolen election. But hey, all the very smart people out there agree that all the other very smart people out there, you know, the people just like them, well, they all say the same thing. And they're all collectively so smart as confirmed by one another that they couldn't possibly be wrong. That would be a conspiracy. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. 
I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!